is to deny really what's at the core of the gospel. Uh, I mean, we've observed other religions who deny the deity of Jesus. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses just outright say we don't worship him. Uh, the religions that deny the deity of Jesus end up concluding that uh, he is not sufficient to save them from their sins, and so they add works to Jesus. This is a non-negotiable, that Jesus is fully God. Equally non-negotiable is this idea that he is fully man. Uh, if you want to see how seriously scripture takes this issue, that we believe that Jesus is a man, 2 John 1 tells us, where we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one, someone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, is the deceiver and the antichrist. I hope you can see how serious it is here. There are people who in church history have denied that Jesus was a real human being. And John is careful to say here, if you believe that, it is a deception and in the spirit of the antichrist. One of the things that is awesome about Jesus being a man is that he's one of us. He knows what it is to be tempted to suffer the hardships and burdens of this life, Jesus is fully man. And to cap off his whole ministry, number three, the scriptures declare that Jesus rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he confirmed his identity of being God, um, proved his power over death, demonstrated that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sins and ensures that one day we too will rise from the dead. Just this week, I was talking to my neighbor Andy, someone we've prayed for, and he asked me, how do you know Christ is the only way? What distinguishes Christianity from every other religion? There's a ton of well-intentioned Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. How do you know Jesus is the only way? And I was able to point to the resurrection and say, listen, all of these other people that say, follow me, they're dead. Their bodies are rotting in a grave. Jesus is alive. The claims that he's made are true. And he was honestly like taken aback by that. There was like a visible, like, whoa, okay. Jesus rose from the dead. And the scriptures say that he is our high priest. He is presiding over a new covenant one in which our relationship with God does not hinge on our ability to adhere to the sacrificial system, but one in which Jesus secured our relationship to God by dying on a cross in our place, bearing God's wrath poured out on sin. Uh, this is what we were calling earlier penal substitutionary atonement. These are core to our faith. And finally, we know that Jesus is coming again to judge and to reign. Look what Revelation says. Actually, this is what Jesus says in Revelation. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And to hear Jesus say those words, I think you just like strike a sense of awe into our hearts. To know Jesus at his first coming, who was despised and treated with contempt and mocked 
and scorned and hung on a tree to see Jesus say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is coming back this time as a king and as a judge. And that is a pretty concise summary of what we've learned up to this point through the last eight weeks. If there was a phrase that I thought encapsulated this whole series, well, if there's one thing I wanted you to remember from this whole series, that is this, that salvation is faith alone and Christ alone. Just a couple of simple thoughts from that phrase. One, salvation is not dependent on my good works. It's not Christ plus my good works. The Bible says salvation is faith alone. And if you add to that, if you take away from that, you do not have salvation. Secondly, it is in Christ alone. This is not a Christ of your own making, a Christ that sounds really good to you, that you have come up with, but it is the Christ of the scriptures, the God-man, that you must be trusting in for salvation. That has been the last eight weeks in a nutshell. And while it's been largely apologetic thus far, there's going to be a pretty significant shift in the tone of this series as we wrap up uh, the exalted Christ. Uh, I'd say it's pretty safe to say that if you could recite those five things I listed and salvation is faith alone and Christ alone, congrats, you know the facts. Being able to articulate and defend those things are important, certainly, but scripture has, puts teeth to it. It's not just being able to regurgitate a bunch of things about Jesus. Jesus offers this invitation to not just know about me, but to follow me. And that is what we are going to examine together this morning. We're going to consider what it costs or what it requires of us in this life to follow Jesus. And last week, I, I mentioned this verse. I'll put it on the screen for you here. I was just reflecting on Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 last week, which reads, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And as I was sitting there reflecting on this, I was just struck by the fact that bowing our knee is not something that we do in our culture today. There, there's not really a, a parallel to this. We know that bowing the knee was a thing in like medieval Europe. You know, in the presence of a monarch, you would bow down before them, uh, kind of giving a visible demonstration of your allegiance, your submission, your humility to that person. We know even today in some Asian cultures, uh, they show that deference by uh, bowing to one another or refusing to look a superior in the eye. But in America, there's nothing that really we do that like just shows this all-out compliance. Uh, even the most we would do for the most important person in our society, the president, is shake his hand. Uh, even in that action, there's a mutual respect. I have respect for you, you have respect for me. It would never even cross our minds to bow down before the president. I mean, frankly, that is un-American even. Right? <laughs> we pride ourselves on, I'm my own man. I'm equal to you. I'm going to do what I want. Certainly, I can show respect, but submission, reverence, all-out compliance, that's unheard of. And yet, what I'm going to put before you this morning is that 
when it comes to our relationship to Christ, that should be our response to him, not just in the next life, but in this life, where we bow the knee of our hearts, if you will, and say, I'm yours. I'll follow you, whatever it takes. There's a passage of scripture that I think highlights this really well. It's Luke chapter 9. If you could turn to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Normally when we come to a passage of scripture like this, I would spend some time giving you the context so we're not just dropping into this passage and, okay, I don't know where we are. But if you look at Luke chapter 9, if you have headers, uh, you can see how complicated it is to even understand the context. There's all sorts of things happening here. Miracles, teaching, the transfiguration. Scripture is just, <clears throat> just blowing through this time of Christ's ministry with different days and places and all of these different events. And we're like, ah, oh, I don't even know the context of it. I, I think we could just conclude that what is happening here is Jesus is in the thick of his ministry. And we're going to focus in this morning on a couple times of teaching in particular in which he outlines what it is that is required to follow him. So the first of those teachings begins in verse 57. Luke 9, 57. We read, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Here in the first two verses, we're introduced to this nameless but enthusiastic guy who just comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. I mean, imagine if someone this morning walked through the front doors of our church and just announced, hey, we don't know this guy from Adam. And he says, hey, I'll follow Jesus. No questions asked. I mean, you'd have to like pick us up off the floor. Like what in the world? You're just like this eager to follow Jesus. And yet Jesus, rather than just like gushing over the fact that someone wants to be his disciple and saying, okay, come on. He says at the outset, hey, let me give you some realistic expectations of what you're going to experience if you follow me. You see, it's not all that glamorous to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, it's homelessness. Look at what he says again, verse 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we don't know what this guy's response was to Jesus' statement, but we do know that Jesus is letting him know from the outset, hey, following me means forfeiting some of the basic necessities of life. The stability of having a home to return to every night, you're not going to get that following me. The comfort of knowing your own bed and pillow, don't expect that if you're a follower of me. There's another instance of this in the very next two verses. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This time it is Jesus who extends the invitation. Follow me. And the guy says, okay, but first I've got a funeral I need to attend. And this isn't just the funeral of a cousin or a friend. This is the funeral of his father. And in essence, Jesus says, leave it. Other people can take care of it. You right now go proclaim the kingdom of God. And to be honest, we're left reeling from that statement like, this guy just wants to bury his dad. Like, isn't that okay? Again, another really intense interaction about the cost of following Jesus picks up in verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This time, it's kind of a hybrid of the previous two interactions. This time, a guy again comes to Jesus and says, hey, I'll follow you, but on my own conditions. I have some matters at home that I have to take care of. I got to say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, listen, being a follower of me means you can't be looking over your shoulder the whole time. Wondering, huh? what's going on back there? There is a single-mindedness. There is an all-out focus and commitment in following Jesus that is required to be a true disciple of him. And, and this is not the only place in scripture that we're confronted with some of the stark realities of being a disciple of Jesus. Just a couple of chapters later in Luke 14, I'll put it on the screen here for you. Verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, again, we're just like, whoa, struck by the seriousness of the requirements to be a follower of Jesus. I, I do want to clarify that Jesus isn't contradicting himself here and saying to hate people in this verse and to love people in another. I think we actually get clarification about what the hate means just a couple of verses later in verse 33 when Jesus concludes after this whole description of what it takes to follow him. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And we would conclude that following Jesus is a single pursuit. Nothing gets in the way of or competes with our commitment to him, not even family. It is him alone. And if we do this, we might ask, how are people going to receive us? Are we just going to be met with, wow, you're so amazing, giving your whole life to Christ. Wow, that's awesome. Actually, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. They're not just going to stand in awe of us, of our commitment to Jesus, and say, wow, you guys are awesome. Jesus says, uh, the world's going to hate you for it. And it's not even an if, 
It's a when. First John clarifies that. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The cost of following Jesus is steep. There's more. First Peter chapter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also receive and be glad when his glory is revealed. This verse is saying, listen, suffering and following Jesus, they go hand in hand. Expect it. Don't be surprised at it, Peter says, as if something strange is happening to you. No, you follow Jesus, expect suffering. I realize that up to this point, this has been kind of information overload now as we've considered all that it is that following Jesus requires, what it costs, what we can expect. But I think we can make some general conclusions. One, following Jesus means let me state it positively or negatively, following Jesus is not a promise of ease or comfort. When Jesus tells that guy, you're going to be homeless, that's what it meant for him in that day to follow Jesus. And that was just a product of Jesus' itinerary. He was always traveling. For us, I think some of that discomfort is going to look like when the world is preaching this philosophy of hoard, 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 me, 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 the discomfort of following Christ is going to be, you know what? It's not about me. It means sacrificing my time, my resources, my energy in this pursuit of Christ. And perhaps this discomfort could find its full manifestation in suffering, as First Peter is saying, in persecution, in the hatred of the world being directed at us, that's not comfortable. That's what we should expect. Secondly, for the person who uh, came to Jesus, the people rather, and said, hey, I've got these other pressing matters at hand, a funeral to attend to, uh, saying goodbye to my family, we could conclude that following Jesus means, as I've said already, a single pursuit. Nothing else is more important. Nothing else takes priority in our own lives, I think that we should reevaluate our priorities and say, is something else sitting in first place in my heart right now? Or is it my full committed desire to follow Jesus? I think it's very much the 1 Corinthians 10.31 model of even eating and drinking to the glory of God. Everything down to the minutia of the decisions we make must be made with following Christ. We cannot afford to be distracted by the things that have no value on this earth. If we stack our lives up against them and conclude that it has no eternal value, drop it. Leave it. As Hebrews says, lay aside the sins and the weights which so easily beset us. And to be honest, maybe you're still like reeling from the shock of what it is required or cost to be a follower of Jesus. And I think, in part, we, we don't think about this too often. We don't include this in our presentation of the gospel. Like, hey, 
follow Jesus. He died for you to save you from your sins. Repent. Heaven is yours if you just accept Christ. Uh, we, we never tack on, oh, and uh, people are going to hate you. You're going to suffer. It's going to require everything of you. Jesus says, your life is mine, all of it. We don't often include that in our presentation of the gospel. And yet the scriptures are telling us, no, these things are a part of following Jesus. Expect them. I think we may have forgotten that, but maybe even more uh, bluntly, maybe some of the shock of this is that our lives and our Christianity as we're living it out today aren't characterized by these things. We've lived a pretty comfortable Christianity. It doesn't cost us a whole lot to be Christ followers. We can do both. Live in the world, get along with people uh, that don't hate me, <laughs> and uh, come to church on Sundays. Uh, I know for a fact I need to stack my life against what Jesus is requiring here and trim everything that isn't contributing to my full pursuit of him. It's one thing to offer a verbal allegiance to Christ, yeah, I'll follow you. But when the rubber meets the road, how about our day-to-day -day life being in lockstep with what his word is revealing, what he is teaching us, and making decisions that actively like contribute to I'm following you. Uh, I imagine if you're here in Sunday school this morning, you have good intentions about wanting to be a follower of Jesus. What does that look like? Thankfully, Jesus tells us pretty specifically, if you're still in Luke chapter 9, back up a couple of verses to verse 23. Here we see a progressive set of instructions for all disciples of Jesus to follow. In verse 23, we read, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Here's kind of the progression of things that have to happen in your life. Number one, step one in being a disciple of Jesus, deny yourself. Understand that your desires take a backseat to Jesus's instructions to you. When you choose to follow Jesus, you are simultaneous, simultaneously choosing to lay aside your own goals, your desires, your hobbies, your friends, your free time, you, 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 and saying, you know what? I am subjecting all of these things to Christ and my pursuit of him. And this just flies in the face of what the world is preaching to us, right? Uh, the world is not saying deny yourself. They're saying live for yourself. This life is the best it's going to get. Enjoy it. They're saying you work hard, spend your money, your weekend, how you want to. Don't worry about the consequences. We'll figure those out later. And there's a part of that kind of thinking, that philosophy, that does, if I'm honest with myself, kind of speak to me. Like, hmm, I do work hard. You're telling me that all of my life has to be in subjection to Christ? 
that my, the entirety of my life has to be characterized by those two words, deny yourself? Can I get a little bit of me time? I came across a quote a couple of years ago, one that has stuck with me on and off, that goes something like this. It's easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. Almost, if you're thinking about it in like this dramatic, like, lie in the sand type moment in which you bravely conclude, yes, I will die for Jesus. You just have to make that decision once. But how about living for Jesus? To every single day, put yourself under his kingship, his authority, that's a lot harder to do, to be honest. And yet the scriptures, like over and over and over and over again, tell us, deny yourself. Let me just rattle through a couple of them for you. Paul says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Verse Peter 4, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 5, a verse we've just considered recently in Sunday mornings, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I trust that the point is clear to you from these verses. Following Jesus and a denial of yourself are intertwined. It's one and the same. If you are following Christ, you are dying to yourself. You are denying yourself. So fundamentally, you are relinquishing control of your life. And when you begin to feel selfishness creep in, I do want to do what I want to do. Your desires are waging war in your heart. You want to be in control. Be the shot caller. Remember, to follow Jesus is to deny yourself. And the culmination of that denial is evidenced in the second instruction here in Luke chapter 9 when we read, Deny himself, take up his cross. And I'm sure you're familiar with the custom back in this day that those who were going to be crucified had to carry the crossbeam themselves to the place of their crucifixion. You know, Jesus himself had to do this until Simon of Cyrene stepped in and carried it the rest of the way for him. Uh, I read one commentator who said something to the effect of, if you were living in this time period, and you saw a band of Roman soldiers come to some dude's house and lead him away with him carrying the crossbeam, you knew that is a one-way journey. Your neighbor isn't coming back. You see someone pick up his cross, it's over. And that is the picture that Jesus is playing off of here. It is certainly a denial of yourself, but Jesus heightens the expectation and says, you know what, it's actually a death to yourself. Paul reiterates this in Galatians 5, where we read, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Verse 24 kind of reiterates what is required of us here in Luke 9. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And we see that if you cling so tightly to this life, trying to get the most out of it, trying to hold on to it, you'll lose it. But if you take the advice here to open your hands, 
let go of your life for the sake of Christ, you will find that you have actually saved it. And I think there are certainly some passages of scripture we could consider this morning. One rises to the top in my mind. That is Romans chapter 12. Paul has just spent the previous 11 chapters talking about the glories and the intricacies of the gospel. And we read this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And Paul says, hey, you've just heard me spend 11 chapters talking about the beauty and the glory of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you. Here's the conclusion. Be a living sacrifice. Now that word is kind of an oxymoron. A living sacrifice doesn't really make sense to us. Normally we think of a sacrifice as something that dies. Paul says, no, you're going to be a living sacrifice. I think it's very similar to what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 9 about taking up our cross. Paul is saying the same thing here. Be a living sacrifice. And the most obvious expression of being that sacrifice is nonconformity to the world. We don't look like them. I, th I think it's worth asking or evaluating to see how much our life looks like the world here. And if there's areas of our life which we could identify as, wow, that is pretty well modeling the same pursuits of the world, then shed it and realign your focus back to Christ. I, I remember growing up, you know, uh, when I would hear this passage of scripture, just when I was feeling snarky, I would say, well, you know, the world has to breathe and eat and put on clothes. Does that mean I should not do those things? You know, <laughs> and it was like, come on. Like, I, I, but take something as simple as clothing and, and just evaluate, like, why is it that you're buying the brands you do or dressing the way you are? Is there something in you that is trying to be worldly, that is demonstrating a conformity to the world's expectations and standards, or are you trying to be Christ-like? I think it just makes its way into simple, simple decisions. Oh, what, what is the focus of your life here? Are you a living sacrifice or are you conforming to this world? And Paul makes the point prior to this, I believe it's Romans 6, that to continue living in sin, to continue living as you were before you were a Christian, is an affront to the gospel. It, it communicates that you do not know what you were saved from. Jesus died to free us from these things. And I've left one word off of Jesus' command here in verse 23. He says to take up our cross daily. I think Jesus knows our propensity for forgetting things. Right? Uh, I mean, maybe it's just me, but how often have you repented of a sin to the Lord, you're well-intentioned, I messed up, I'm going to repent of this. And like 20 minutes later, you commit the same sin. That is me, more regularly than I would probably admit. Or, or, or you are discouraged, 
and you remind yourself of some great biblical truth and there's a verse of scripture that just comforts your soul. And 10 minutes later, you're discouraged again and you've forgotten what it is that you just reminded yourself of. I mean, I'll be the first to attest. My flesh is alive and well. And Jesus says, take up your cross daily. In, in my life, Jesus could have very well have said, take up your cross hourly, and it would have been appropriate. But what Jesus is communicating here is that this death to yourself has to take place and take place often. Every single day, you need to take up your cross, die to those desires, those things that are grasping at your heart and trying to pull you off track and conform you to the world and just totally change, you know, your orientation. No, recommit. I'm Christ. I'm a follower of his. I can die to myself. I'm going to have to do it again in a half hour. This is the mindset of a true follower of Jesus. And his last command here in this progression, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And I actually want to look at other people's responses to Jesus' command to follow him because I think those are telling. Mark chapter 1. This is Jesus. He's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you, or excuse me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Just one chapter later in Mark, we read this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Uh, what are some of the things you're observing about Jesus' command to follow him and people's responses? What are, what are you seeing? Immediate, right? In the case of these people at the end of Luke 9, they're like, oh, okay, but let me go do something really quick. Jesus says, follow me to the disciples. Uh, Peter and Andrew, they leave the nets where they are. James and John, they leave their dad in the boat with the servants. Matthew leaves his lucrative job as a tax collector, just leaves the booth and follows Jesus. That is the spirit, or should be the spirit, that characterizes us in our pursuit of Christ. Where he puts his finger on something in our life, okay, I'll follow you got to be immediate. Nothing else is as important as this calling in my life. These guys have illustrated very well for us that following Jesus takes priority. Nothing is more important. 
certainly we have to work. Certainly we have an obligation to care for our families. Even doing those things and doing them well can be an expression of our devotion to Christ. But I think it's the attitude. I'm yours, Lord. I'll follow you. Whatever you say, I'm in. Maybe there's a question that's looming large in your mind. After having read with me what it is that it is going to cost you. People are going to hate you. You're going to suffer. Be persecuted. Jesus says your whole life is mine. Nothing else is as important as this. We might be asking ourselves, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus knowing that this is what I get? Hardship? Things that are uncomfortable? I think this is a question that unbelievers have to ask themselves when confronted with Christ, as they have held so tightly to their way of doing things. Man, sin is fun. My life is mine. You're telling me I have to let this go to follow Christ? I think a similar question comes across our minds, and we have to ask ourselves probably daily, is it worth it to submit my desires, my goals, my dreams daily to Jesus? And admittedly, this would be a difficult decision did we not know who Jesus was. If he was just a cruel taskmaster, it's going to be a hard choice for us. Listen to Jesus' description of himself in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, this is not submission to a cruel taskmaster. He says, your life is mine. Cracks the whip. This is a submission, a repurposing and rededicating of our lives to the Son of God who came and died to redeem us from our sins. And our act of worship then, as Romans says, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let me read you Christians, missionaries from history who have been confronted with this question, is it worth it? Should I spend my life for myself? Look at how these Christians answered this question. William Carey, the great missionary to India, called the father of modern missions, said this, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. In the grand scheme of things, things that don't matter 
are anything but following Christ. And this man lived that. How about C.G. Studd? Who said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What maybe you don't know about this guy is that he was like a pro cricket player in England. Who gives up all of the glory and wealth and fame of what he had in front of him to go be a missionary. Because he knew that it is worth it to follow Christ. To give up what the world says, hang on to. And to submit himself to his Savior. Finally, uh, missionary, I think we all know and know, and know this uh, phrase here, but Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Seems to be a re-paraphrasing of Luke 9.24. Here's a guy who was, when he was 28, is killed, bringing the gospel to a tribe of people who they don't care about him. But he cared about their souls. And he answered this call to follow Christ. And while the world sees this as something that came at great cost to himself, he's 28. From a Christian perspective, he obeyed this command to the fullest. What does Jesus say? Is it worth it to follow him? Matthew 19, <laughs> Peter kind of asks the question himself, hey, uh, what do we get for following you kind of thing? Peter says, uh, hey, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It seems that there is a very specific reward for the disciples here. You followed me, you gave up everything. You've got, a tr you've got a throne that you will judge in the last days. But Jesus isn't done talking to these people. He addresses us as well. And he says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus knows what it is that we have left behind what it is that has cost us, and he promises us to restore that a hundredfold and eternal life. It is worth it to follow Jesus, to take up our cross daily. Let me just encourage you, beginning today, start doing this with me. And I hope that, if nothing else, this is just a great, like, reshifting of our focus back on what it is that is important in our lives. Let's pray really quick. Lord, we love you. Uh, we needed your word this morning, uh, these reminders that uh, we're familiar with, but we, again, we need to be reminded of them. Thank you for Christ and his sacrifice, and it's in his name we pray.